you're finding 1 John chapter 4, uh, I will tell you, I keep finding John is not as simple as I always thought he was. So I'm going to ask you today to please follow along closely. It's going to be uh, very interrelated with the things that we've already learned. So 1 John chapter 4, we left off at verse 12. Our text this morning is verses 13 through 21. We'll start with verse 12 again um, this morning. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and to testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. And we have known and believe the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. So as the Apostle John sat down to pen this letter, there were false teachers plaguing the believers that John, John was vexed by this. He so loved those people that he calls them his brothers, his beloved, his little children, and these false teachers had come in and they, they insisted that they had extra revelation. They knew things that other believers just didn't know, and they had pressed that so far as to make genuine Christians question whether they could really know God at all. And so this letter has the theme, you can know. Just just listen to what John says. Don't, don't try to, to catch up with all these verses as I give them because I'm going to give them kind of machine gun style, okay? But you're going you're gonna to hear the theme. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. In chapter 2, verse 5, Whoever keeps his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. In verse 20, you have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. The next verse, I have not written unto you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. In chapter 3, verse 5, you know that he was manifested to take away our sin. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life. Verse 19, here's how we know that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him. Chapter 3, verse 24, Here's how we know that he abides in us by the spirit which he has given us. 
In chapter 4, verse 2, here's how we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. In verse 6, hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This continues on through the entire letter into chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In verse 19, we know that we are of God. In verse 20, we know the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we know Him that is true. John wants you to know that you can know. I want to make sure that you know that John wants his readers to know that knowing God is something that you can know that you know. Since that's the main theme of this entire letter, when we come to another one of those statements at the beginning of our text this morning, we can't sort of divorce it from the overall theme of the book. He says in verse 13, here, here's how we know that we dwell in him. Here's how you know. So that's how this text fits into the, the overall theme of the letter, but I also want you to see the immediate context, what John's saying in the verses right around this. For you uh, weird people who liked English class so much you took secret delight in diagramming sentences and outlining paragraphs, the Apostle John is for you. In some ways, it would have been entirely appropriate to preach all from verse 7 through verse 21 all at one time as a single unit because our text this morning is so clearly a continuation of the text from last week. Last Sunday, we left off at verse 12. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. The end of that verse, verse 12, he says, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. That would actually be a really good outline. Those two points would be a really good outline for our entire text this morning. God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. You'll see this. Uh, God dwells in us is the main idea of verses 13 through 16. Verse 13 starts, here's how we know that we dwell in him and he in us. Verse 16 says, whoever dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. And then the other statement from verse 12, his love is perfected in us. That's the main idea of verses 17 through 21. You see, verse 17 begins, herein is our love made perfect. So John's camping out on this idea of love for a while because the expressing of God's love is a certain indicator of whether or not you actually know God. Glance up at verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. In verse 8, whoever doesn't love doesn't know God, for God is love. So just to summarize this for a moment, and I know it's a really bad thing, generally speaking, an introduction doesn't need a summary, but here we are. The overall theme of the letter is that you can know that you're united with God through faith in Jesus. The immediate idea in chapter 4 here is that the love that we express is sure evidence of salvation, 
because it finds its source in the love which God first expressed to us through Jesus. This morning's text argues that you can know that you dwell in God and God dwells in you, right? Verse 13, here's how we know that we dwell in him and he in us. You can know this. You can know this because God has placed his life in you. You can know this because God has placed his love in you. Those things are knowable, John says. You can know that you dwell in God and God's in you. As we work our way through verses 13 through 21 this morning, I want to notice three assurances every Christian possesses because God is in them. Three assurances every Christian possesses because God is in them. I'm going to give them to you, all three, and then I'm going to repeat them because they're a little bit longer than normal. Okay, First, God in us gives us unity with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. God in us gives us unity with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Second, God in us gives us confidence as we anticipate judgment. God in us gives us confidence as we anticipate judgment. And third, God in us lets us love as a demonstration of God's love. God in us lets us love as a demonstration of God's love. Verses 13 through 16 gives us that first point. God in us gives us unity with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Look at verses 13 through 16. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. And we have known and believed that God has, uh, the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God, and God in him. I want you to know just how Trinitarian those verses are. We were just singing a very Trinitarian song, right? To the triune God we raise with loving hearts our song of praise. It's a Father, Son, and Spirit. I think John would argue that we're united with God because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have each taken a vital role in the life and faith of God's people. Each one is mentioned explicitly here. There, there is a crucial connection to the life of a believer. Now I'm pointing this out now because when we get over in chapter 5, a few weeks from now, there is a short passage which supports the idea of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And that passage is the subject of lots of debate. Some people say, well, that belongs there, and some have tried to take it out because they want to remove the Trinity, and others say it doesn't belong there, someone's trying to insert it. But listen, in chapter 4, right here, in a passage where there is no debate, we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the entire Trinity clearly expressed. It's as if John presents all three persons of the Godhead individually, sort of bringing them to center stage to show how each 
leads us to the inevitable conclusion that believers dwell in God and God dwells in us. God, in all three persons, dwells in us. First, John says in verse 13, we know that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. This is a full and complete giving that John describes. The, the tense in the Greek language is very clear. It's perfect. It is, it is a completed idea. Every believer in Jesus Christ has been brought to life by the Holy Spirit and are now indwelled by the Holy Spirit. There's a notion in some parts of Christianity that the Holy Spirit is something that comes to you in bits and pieces, that somehow you get an added portion of the Spirit or a, a second helping or a second blessing as if the, the Holy Spirit's a pie and God's cut it into slices to give to you little pieces at a time. John's not presenting the gift of the Holy Spirit as a partial gift or as a progressive gift. This is a gift given in full to every believer. So it's not a matter of whether or not you have enough of the Holy Spirit. It's really only a question of, do you have the Holy Spirit at all? Do you? Do you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you? There's no simple litmus test for this. However, it's clearly not based on just how you're feeling at that moment. It wouldn't be like John to give this as evidence that you can know if there's really no way that you can know. So think of in John's Gospel in chapter 3, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, that Pharisee came to him saying, Master, we know. And Jesus essentially was like, stop right there. You don't know anything. You don't know anything unless you're born again. He went on to explain the Holy Spirit's work in a believer by comparing it to the wind, if you remember. He says, the wind blows wherever it wishes, and you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not something that you can see, but the evidence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is something that is absolutely undeniable. Just like you can't look out and see the wind, but you know for certain that the wind is there when you see the tree swaying because it's moved on it. You can't look at a believer and see the Holy Spirit, but you can see without question the movement of the Holy Spirit on the life of a believer. So do you see the Holy Spirit's effect on your life? Paul says in Romans 1.16, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In Galatians, we learn that the, the fruit of the Spirit, the, the product of the Holy Spirit, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, and self-control. In this letter, John argues that the Holy Spirit is the means by which we know truth from error. It's the Spirit's indwelling presence which produces love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In the next verses of our text, we find it's the Holy Spirit that leads us to, to testify, to confess that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. That's far from the full detail of the New Testament's description of the Holy Spirit's work. 
But I think it will do for our purposes this morning. Do you have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you? Do you rejoice in being a child of God? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit displayed in your life? Can you identify the truth about Jesus from falsehoods that are said about him? Do you love the people who God loves? Do you you believe, do you declare that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world? None of that happens without the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's presence in your life is how you know that you dwell in God and God dwells in you. In addition to the Spirit indwelling us, John says, we know that we dwell in God when we, in verse 14, have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. You are a child of God when you know God as your loving Heavenly Father. That is something that is accomplished through His will, not through your own. That's actually one of the functions of the Spirit that causes us to to cry out to God as Father. The offer of the Gospel, the way John has written here, the offer of the Gospel is not something that came about by accident. It is the Father who John says loves us before we loved Him. It's the Father who determined to send His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. If you recall last week, it was the love of the Father which sent Jesus the Son into the world to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, satisfying the Father's wrath so that his love might be known. You can't skip over the Father's work. Believers must acknowledge God the Father. Just go back and read through the Gospels and and ask yourself the question, What did Jesus think about the Father's role in the life of his children? And when you do that, some statements are going to start to jump out at you. Jesus says, I've not come to do my will, but the will of him that sent me. My food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. All the things that I've heard of my Father, that's what I've said to you. Jesus didn't come freelancing on his messianic mission. It was the the Father who sent him to be the Savior of the world. And every believer knows themselves to be the child of that same Heavenly Father. Jesus secured our unity with the Father so that we can know that we dwell in him and he dwells in us. That was the very prayer of Jesus before he was crucified. In John 17, 21, he prayed prayed to to the Father over his disciples to say that they may all be as one. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be one in us. In fact, I think that prayer might have been on John's mind when he penned these verses. Because as he moves on from the Holy Spirit to the Father and then finally to the Son, listen how he echoes that prayer in verses 15 and 16. Whoever will confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love and he that dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. 
what John tells us about Jesus the Son in these verses is three specific things. One, he is the Savior of the world. Second, he is the Son of God. And third, he is the revelation of God's love. You see that Savior of the world at the end of verse 14. I'm not, listen, I'm not going to make the argument today about what John means when he uses that term world. If you're confused about it or you want help with it, please feel free to ask. I'll be glad to have a a longer explanation. But for this morning, let's suffice to say that John uses this term world not to mean every single person, but to mean all kinds of people in all kinds of places. Or as it's usually intended for the original audience of the New Testament, Jesus didn't just come to save you. That's an important message for the first century Jewish Christians to understand. The love of Jesus did not stop with people who look like you and talk like you and dress like you. The gospel expresses Jesus' love for all kinds of people in all kinds of places. More importantly for us in the context of this letter, John is mostly concerned about the love that God has displayed in order to ask about the love that your life displays. And so let me make this just as a practical application. If your love is reserved for people who look like you and talk like you and dress like you, don't claim to be displaying the love of Jesus. You're only making a mockery of it. The love of Jesus being displayed in your life to others should be displayed as widely as the love of Jesus when he came to be the savior of the world. All kinds of people in all kinds of places. God doesn't only say that Jesus is the savior of the world, but also he's the son of God. Verse 15, whoever will confess that Jesus is the son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. Now, It's evident that not every person who says the words, Jesus is the Son of God, is a child of God. No doubt I could find an atheist who would be glad to come in here, say those words, and point and say, see, the Bible's not true because I just said that and I am not a child of God. If it were something as simple as just saying those words, then the sad history of Roman Catholic violence would be vindicated. Why not beat a confession out of a person for this? That's not what John intends. This this confession that he's talking about is both to believe and to outwardly acknowledge that Jesus is God's son, along with all the truths that that implies. He's God's son. He's the savior of the world. Most importantly, he's the savior of you. He died on the cross for your sins. He was was raised to give you eternal life, and now you live in him because he lives in you. This confession is more than just claiming Jesus out loud. But listen to me. It's not less than that. It's more than just proclaiming out loud in front of others that Jesus is the Son of God. But it is no less than proclaiming out loud to others that Jesus is the Son of God. You cannot sit in your pew this morning and internalize the gospel, truly believing it, without 
externally expressing it. You can't. The Holy Spirit will, will not allow this. will not let you be silent. We have adequate biblical reason to question whether a permanently silent believer is really a believer at all. Don't assume that's true because I said it. You don't have to believe me. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Whoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father which is in heaven. Whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. You either confess him or you deny him, and I don't see any other option there. Now the third thing John says about Jesus sort of flows into the next point of the text. Verse 16 describes Jesus as the expression of God's love. Through Jesus, verse 16 says, we've known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God, and God in him. Jesus is the expression of God's love. God is love. If you're living in love, it must be that you're living in God, because God is love. So that God's love in you John says, is evidence of God's life in you. And so again, God in us gives us unity with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. But keep in mind how John ends that there. If you, if you live in love, then you live in God and God in you, because that's going to be vital in understanding our second point. Second point, verses 17 through 19 God gives us, God in us gives us confidence as we anticipate judgment. Look at this verses 17 and 18 to start. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. Now remember John's argument. You can know that you dwell in God and God in you by the indwelling presence of the Spirit, by the knowledge of God as your loving Heavenly Father, by the belief in Jesus as God's Son, your Savior, the expression of God's love. And so now he goes back up to verse 12 and picks up that theme from the end of verse 12 where he said, if we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. You can see he's going back to that in verse 17. Here's how our love is made perfect. As you read this, try to remember the word perfect means something a little bit differently to us nowadays than it did with first century folks. What we usually mean when we use the word perfect is something like flawless. If your expectation is that you are going to be flawless in this life, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You're not going to be flawless. Your love, the expression of love that you get is not going to be flawless. Instead, the word perfect here, as they used it in the first century, means complete. It's actually also a word that means mature, grown up, complete, come to its fullness. 
That is, there is an end goal of God's love. Look at verse 17. There is coming a day when the people who live in God's love, and thus they live in God, God's in them, are going to stand before God in judgment with boldness. What a word. Boldness. This is why I'm saying God in us gives us confidence as we anticipate judgment. John's continuing his thought about Jesus here. Jesus is the expression of God's love. And if you remember from last week up in verse 10, Jesus is the expression of God's love as he was sent to be the propitiation for our sins. Remember what propitiation means? Atoning sacrifice. Jesus has absorbed God's wrath. He took our sin onto himself, paid all the cost, all the penalty for our sin. He has absorbed all of the wrath of God on our behalf. Every ounce of God's righteous anger towards our sin has been taken by Jesus. I said, this isn't a new topic in this letter. John's already said something very similar as he went through a different test earlier in chapter 2 as he was giving the obedience test, right? Do you follow the commands that God gives? If you do, you can have, he says, confidence when Jesus returns. Chapter 2, verse 28, if you want to look at it, says, Now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. The word confidence there is the very same Greek word as boldness in our text. But this time John's issuing the love test, right? Are you living in God's love? And if you are, here's how you know that it's completed. Here's how it comes to its fullness. You're going to have boldness. You're going to have confidence in the day of judgment. There is a judgment day coming. The return of Jesus, his second coming, is closer today than it has ever been. That will be a day of rejoicing for his saints and a day of dread for unbelievers when he returns. Because in the words of Paul, he's going to return with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that don't know God and have not obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't repented of your sins, if you haven't believed in God's Son and embraced the Father's love, you have every reason to tremble and fear at the prospect of the coming day of judgment. But if you have turned from your sin and you've trusted Jesus as Savior, you have no reason to fear. You can have boldness. You can have confidence he has removed your sin by his blood. He has secured your salvation by his life. He's replaced your sinfulness with his righteousness so that when the Father looks at you, he looks at you as he would look at his very own perfect son. That's what John means, I think, at the end of verse 17 when he says, because as he is, so are we in this world. That's not a simple phrase to grasp, but I'm convinced it means that though we're in this world and Jesus is the right hand of God, God sees us as he sees Jesus because we are also his children. He's our loving father. And so then the prayer of Jesus in John 17 has been answered. 
Just as the Son is in the Father and the Father in the Son, he says, I want them to be one with us, and we are one with them. How much confidence should we have through Jesus? Not only can we look forward to the day of judgment with boldness and confident expectation, but look at verse 18. We can live without fear. There is no fear in love, he says in verse 18. But perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. Love and fear can't live together. They are exclusive. They cannot be reconciled. John says, I love the picture, perfect love casts out fear. Have you ever had the time where you just had to show somebody to the door? Or the way I picture it, you'll have to forgive me, is an old western movie where somebody gets tossed out the pink glass window. Love casts out fear. Puts fear out. If you're always worried about when the hammer is going to fall for the awful things you've done, and you're afraid of the torment and punishment that you're facing, it's because you are not confident in God's love. John is said up in verse 16, we know and believe the love that God has for us. He says at the end of verse 18, he, he that fears is not made perfect in love. He's not complete in love. If you're afraid, it's because there's something missing. You cannot be rejoicing in God's love and cowering in fear from his wrath at the same time. They, they, they aren't reconciled together. They don't go together. Love has tossed fear out the window and is not going to let fear back in the house. Remember, God's love was expressed perfectly in Jesus. Jesus absorbed God's wrath in our place. Jesus gave us his righteousness. Our loving Heavenly Father sees us as he sees his son. So ask, do you think Jesus quakes in fear at the prospect of standing before the Father? Of course not. And you might think, well, but I'm good enough. I'm not good enough. And admittedly, it's true. You're, you're not good enough. I'm not good enough. But our, our worthiness is not the issue. God's love is the issue. And so for the second time, in this chapter, John again stresses the priority of God's love. Remember up in verse 10, he says, this is love. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Now in verse 19, he says it again. We love him because he first loved us. Amen. Do you know the love of God to be true for you? Has God ever given you any reason to doubt his love for you? then live in confidence, not fear. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit live in you. The love of God lives in you. There is, there is no room for fear. So we've seen first, God in us gives us unity with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Second, God in us gives us confidence as we anticipate judgment. Finally, God in us lets us love as a demonstration of God's love. Verses 20 and 21. 
If a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother who he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. As John sort of drives home this test of love in a practical way, I hope you weren't expecting him to pull any punches. He is consistently making these kinds of statements throughout his letter, these if someone says statements, in order to point out the absolute hypocrisy of saying one thing and then doing something entirely contrary. In chapter 1, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. Chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Chapter 2, verse 4, he that says, I know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. In chapter 2, verse 9, he that says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness, even right now. So we shouldn't be shocked that as John has developed this beautiful theology, which I have done a horrible job of describing to you, but as he, he develops this beautiful theology of God's love, he's going to take and he's going to turn it on us to call out our revolting hypocrisy. If a man says, I love God and hates his brother, John just said he's, he's a liar. That's what he is. He's a liar. He's living a lie. How can you love God and not love your fellow man? Remember when Jesus was asked what was the greatest commandment in Scripture? You remember his response? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. That was all they asked for, but that's not where Jesus stopped. He said, and the second is just like it. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Or, in other words, loving God and loving others is the comprehensive teaching of the entirety of Scripture. Just because we prefer to say, okay, well, John, like all that... All love, no fear stuff. We like that. Why don't we just cut it off right there? Just stop. It doesn't mean that John has gone off point here. In making an argument from the lesser to the greater, his logic is impeccable. If you can't love your brother who's standing right in front of you, why should anybody believe that you love the God who you can't even see? That's what he says in verse 20. He who loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? If you don't love his children, you don't love the Father. If you don't love the creation, you do not honor the Creator. If you don't love your neighbor who is made in the image of God, do not claim to be saved by Jesus Christ who is God. Now you know why I love verse 21? Because every 
every time I say something like I did earlier, you know, you don't have to take my word for it, just remember what Jesus said. It turns out the Apostle John beat me to that strategy by like 2,000 years. Isn't that what he's doing in verse 21? He is making a very hard application. And then he backs up that with, this is the commandment we have from him. He who loves God loves his brother also, right? Don't argue with me. This is what Jesus said. Now granted, your neighbor may or may not be deserving of your love. But what's the example of love that we have here? God loved first. If you think, oh, I can't love that guy, it would take God himself to love that guy. Well, congratulations, you're starting to get the meaning of the text. Remember verse 16, he that dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. How does God love? Well, it's not the way that the world loves, and it's not the kind of love that the world throws around so lightly. The world says to love is to be accepting of everything, right? In the world, unless you affirm every sin a person has, you will be called unloving. God doesn't affirm sin. We should not either. We're called in the New Testament to speak the truth in love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. So there are lines that you cannot cross, but you can love your neighbor as God loves. God's love is sacrificial. God's love is generous. It's, it's gracious and loving the undeserved. It's, it's merciful and being expressed to those who don't deserve it. That's, that's what John is saying in this text, and I, I know I have to stop, but because God is living in you, God is loving through you. That's what he wants us to understand in this chapter. You are indwelled by the Spirit. You've embraced him as your loving Heavenly Father. You've trusted Jesus as Savior. You have confidence to stand before him, not cowering in fear, but delighting in his love. And so this is the command. If you love God, display that love by loving those who are made in the image of that very God who loved you and you love him in return.